So I hope that you guys all had a good Wednesday last week. Our family vacation was good. It was nice to be out on like Pismo Beach area where there was no smoke in the air. But it's also nice and a blessing to be back with you guys going back through Judges. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 20. That's where we were two weeks ago. So you can go ahead and open up that now. We have a lot to cover tonight. 30 verses is part of this narrative. So I don't want to spend too much time recapping it. But just so we remember where we are right now, a couple things should be said. The splintered and broken tribes of Israel have all come together because of this shock of the sin of these worthless fellows in Gibeah. But rather than giving these people up, it was seen that the tribe of Benjamin is too proud to do such a thing. They're too arrogant. And so this is a greatly um, proportioned battle is about to take place. The first 18 verses of chapter 20 detailed all of, the, all of these things. And so you have about 400 or you have 400,000 Israelites, men who are ready to take up the sword and go against 26,700 men from the tribe of Benjamin. It's pretty unbalanced, right? Uh, you would think Benjamin, this tribe of Benjamin, if they were wise, they wouldn't even show up to this fight because how is 26,700 people going to even stand a chance against 400,000 people? We might be thinking of the common sense that Jesus, that Jesus applies to this type of situation in Luke chapter 14 as well. There, Luke 14, verse 31 to 33, Jesus says this. And, and this he's, he's, well, let me just read it first. Um, he says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with him against 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus uses this common sense scenario in which there's a battle between 10,000 against 20,000. But our scenario here is 26,000 versus 400,000. And Jesus, he's an amazing teacher, of course. He's the God-man. And so he takes this common sense scenario that would be pretty obvious to all mankind and uses it to teach people about what it takes to follow him, what it takes to be a disciple of his, how it is that we must count the cost as Christians. We, If we're to follow Jesus, it means that we renounce all that we have, meaning that Christ himself is first in our life. First in our life, above our family members even, but before our jobs, before anything else. Uh, that's part of counting the cost. And if we want that, which is a good thing to want, it's a wonderful thing to want, it's only because we've been born again so that we would desire and choose those sorts of right things. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But And it's worth it to follow Jesus, somebody Need some help. Can you help that person, Terry? It might be Liz. Thank you. So that's what it, it takes that to follow Jesus. But is it worth it to go to war with 26,000 people versus 400,000? See, if you're going to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything, but it's worth it. You'll lose your life so that you'll have the better life of following Christ that has eternal blessings and even makes the suffering and the trials of this life all worth it. And we know that God works all those things out for our good even, right? Romans eight twenty eight. But in a battle of 26,000 versus 400,000, is it worth it? That is just most likely, and it's going to lead to death and no reward. But that is where Benjamin is. They're blinded by pride and arrogance. They're ready to go to battle against $400,000 to defend, or 400,000 people to defend the sin they committed. So let's read our chapter. 
then we can get started. Hey, Liz. Hey, well, this is just on Wednesdays. We usually have a student um, ministry service, but you're welcome to stay and hang out. Okay. Okay. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 18 in chapter 20. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place and they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and before the, the Lord and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord God said, Go up against them. And so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out in Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these men were who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that, that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at the other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their place from Merah-Gebah. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed twenty-five thousand one hundred men of Benjamin that day. All these men who drew the sword. Excuse me, all these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush and whom they had set at Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah, and the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with an edge with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city. The men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw the disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their mists. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah, as far as the opposite of Gibeah on the east, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down the highways, and they were pursued hard to, to Gadam. 
and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell at the day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them at the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found were set on fire. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that's a lot to take in at one time, and we pray that you would help our minds to be free from distraction as we think about this event, as we think about what it is that you want us to know from your word. Holy Spirit, we need you. Uh, illuminate our hearts, all for Christ's glory's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so try to title this sermon, Weeping uh, at Bethel. We see Israel doing that a lot here. And there's a lot going on besides the outworking of a military conflict. Of course, the military conflict is the main thing that's happening here. But there's a lot of details happening inside of that that we are able to consider. Um, and we should consider those first. Because we finally have some historical placing of the event that we've been reading about uh, since we started this event back in chapter 19. So let's take a notice of what happens in verse 27. So look there in chapter 20. In verse 27, look at there what we read. We read, the, And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. It's all caps, right? What does that tell us? That they're inquiring of the Lord Yahweh. It's his covenant name. It's, it's his personal name. And that's really good, right? It's been a while since we even have read of such behavior from the people of God. And we'll say more on that in a moment. But then we read in the second half of 27, in parentheses, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. Well, what days? And we'll deal with the, the where when we get back to verse 18. But we finally see an answer as to where we should place this event as we continue on into verse 28. Verse 28, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. So one of the ways in which historians are able to date books of the Bible and the events they describe is by knowing who was doing the priestly service. Because remember, not everyone could be a priest. You couldn't just be a priest if you wanted to and you're from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or something like that. Priests were all appointed by God. God chose Aaron, and the, who was the brother of Moses, and who they were both from the tribes of the Levites. And the Levites were going to be the ones who were going to be the, the priests in God's covenant economy. And so the sons of Aaron and his grandsons and great-grandsons and on and on and on, they would serve as the priests, the people of God. So the Hebrew people kept really good records of who the priests were. In fact, there have been documents that show that that which would place Zechariah, uh, John the Baptizer's dad, as serving in the temple at such a time period that gives precedence to the birth of Jesus being on December 25th. So meaning that the holiday that we observed as the birth of Christ wasn't probably wasn't just some Roman Catholic takeover of a pagan holiday to make it about Christ. There's there's evidence within the Jewish calendar to say that Jesus actually was born around that time period because Zechariah was serving in the temple during that time frame. And he his his job in the temple would have would have been present around the time when Jesus was camped to be circumcised. And you get circumcised eight days after you're born, right? In the in the old covenant community. So anyways, nevertheless, the mention of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, tells us something about the timing of this event. He's operating as the priest in these days. And he's the Eleazar who was the son of Aaron. 
This is the same Phineas that we read of early on in Exodus, and where in Numbers, whose zealous nature for God's holiness compelled him to spear an Israelite and the, the woman that he was living sexually and morally with through the stomach. He pierced them both through the stomach with the one spear. You remember that in Numbers, um, I think it might be Numbers 27 or somewhere around there. I could be wrong with that, but I know it's absolutely for sure in Numbers. And because of their, because of his, his zealousness to stop the sinful behavior, this plague was stopped in the camp of Israel. So if this event that we're reading about uh, with the wandering Levite who let his concubine get raped and then chopped up and put into 12, or and then chopped her up and put into 12 plates, pieces and mailed her out to the tribes is happening at or around the time of Samson, that would mean Phineas lived to be over 300 years old. That's doubtful. It's not likely. I mean, we do read of people living very old in the Bible, but it's much before this. It's much closer to the time of the flood and those things and before the flood. Or it could be that this was some descendant some 300 years later to show the significance of his family line. So they just actually skip his dad and grandfather and a few other great-grandfathers to attach him to Aaron, essentially. But again, that's doubtful, too, because there are some other clues in the text that make it highly unlikely. So what that means is that this horrific event and this war with the tribes is actually predating many of the events that we've read about in Judges. This is something that happened towards the beginning of the period of the time of Judges, maybe within 30 years to 100 years of the death of Joshua even. Because remember, Joshua succeeded Moses, and so Aaron has his son, which would be Eleazar, which is similarly around the same age then as Joshua. And then this is Eleazar's son, who's living after that. So this is early on during the Judges period, most likely. And so that means that the horrible act in Gibeah wasn't simply the result of evil unchecked for a few hundred years. It would mean that this sort of evil and corruption is always within the capabilities of fallen man's nature. Certainly it's true that giving ourselves over to sinful habits over long periods of time is going to harden our hearts and make it a lot easier to sin in those ways. That's absolutely true. But nevertheless, if this is happening early on, it's telling us that such atrocities, such acts of evil are readily able to be made by any man at any time um, in so much as the Lord allows it. But properly speaking, the capacity to do, to do great evil is always present within us. Israel didn't need to be influenced by Canaan to do this wicked thing. They already were, are already just like Canaan, if not for the mercy of God. Because of the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden and violated that covenant that they were in, uh, when Adam ate, he was cursed for it. And so all, all of the people who he represented in that covenant were also cursed with him, which is all of mankind, of course, since all of mankind comes from him. Everyone but Jesus was born from Adam. And because of that covenant curse that we are in, the nation of Israel back then, even though God had entered into a covenant with them through Abraham and Moses at this point, them, us today, people in every age, we are all what is known as totally depraved. And so let me read you a historic definition of this doctrine from the Canons of Dort, and then I'll give you a short summary of it. That should make sense and hopefully be easily memorable. But this is speaking to our capacity to sin fact that we're totally depraved. So the definition from the Canons of Dort, and the Canons of Dort 
Mind you, there's this document that is about going on 400 years old. It was the, a little bit over 400 years old. It was written in 1617, so early part of the 17th century is when it was put together. And it was, it was drafted in light of some bad teaching that crept into the church. And so I just wanted to correct that. But this is Article 1 on the effect of the fall of human nature. It says this. Human beings were originally created in the image of God and were furnished in mind with a true and sound knowledge of the Creator and things spiritual, in will and heart with righteousness, and in all emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole human being was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by their own free will, they deprived themselves of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, they brought upon themselves blindness, terribleness, or terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance, and hardness in their hearts and wills, and finally, impurity in all their emotions. So that is the classic and historic definition of, of what it means for a person to be totally depraved. Total depravity doesn't mean that humans are all as bad as they can be, to use like the sort of language that gets a lot of traffic on social media, like everyone is, to be totally depraved is not everyone is literally Hitler or something like that. That's not what it's trying to say. While totally, total depravity means is that mankind is fully corrupt in all of our faculties, heart, mind, and soul. And apart from the grace of God, we would never seek to, we would never think to seek out anything that is truly good uh, and, not, and not to do so with the right motives either. And that means that practically, and in light of what we've been reading here in Judges 19 and 20, is that apart from being born again and trusting in Christ, any one of us is capable of gross immorality and serious transgression. Any one of us at any time, if not for the providence and the grace of God, is capable of doing horrific evil. Even the person who is truly a believer, right? I don't mean to say that when you become a Christian, then you are incapable of doing extremely evil acts. It shouldn't happen. By God's grace, it, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Uh, Peter denied Christ three times when it mattered, right, at a very important time. Or King David and all the drama with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's possible that a believer can commit serious uh, and gross immorality. But it's not that, um, I'm not saying here that you lose your salvation at some points because you, that's not how God's covenant works. Uh, Christ atoned for all of our sins. Nevertheless, you should never you know, use that as some sort of excuse to sin, obviously, either. So it's important for you as a Christian to put to death sinful desires that exist within you and to set your mind on the things above as Colossians 3 instructs us. Not because such things are going to save you. Your salvation is accomplished and applied from start to finish by God. The whole thing. But sin is not to master you. You've been set free from sin and so and don't assume though that you won't do or that you can't do evil. But be diligent in prayer and acts of faith. Because you know if this whole event did happen in the days of Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron, that means that it's, it's, it's within a generation of Israel promising to Joshua to uphold the covenant. Remember at the end of Joshua, he, he goes over the covenant, the promises, and the blessing, and the cursing, and all of Israel says, we will do it. And Joshua's kind of like, no, you won't. But they nevertheless said, well, no, we're going to do it. And then 
if this is right, the datum is right. I mean, it's, it's very fast before they have given themselves headlong over into sin. They went down fast. And if not for God's mercy and grace, we might as well too. So let's go back to 18 now, verse 18. Israel does something good. And again, this, you know, might be very, this is very early on in the judges period, it seems. They're going to inquire of God about what they should do. Now, granted, if this is in the time frame soon after Joshua died, then they would still be in the habit of doing such things. By the time of Samson, they really weren't in the habit of inquiring of God, right? I mean, that stopped like, you know, way back with uh, Gideon really being the last one. And it's interesting here that in Judges chapter 20, the author put this story here rather than in the beginning of the book. And then he chose to use the word Elohim for God here in verse 18 rather than the covenant name, which we would see in all caps for L-O-R-D, for Lord. But, and they do use God's personal covenantal name later though, so I'm not trying to make a point saying that they're not using it now. But this is the first time the phrase inquired of God has been used in Judges actually since Judges 1-1. So Judges 1-1 opened up with the people of Israel inquiring of the Lord. Now here we are with this story that's horrific in Judges chapter 20 at the end of the book, and we are reading again that they're inquiring of God. Another clue of this story is early on in Judges period is because they go to Bethel, which means the house of God. Because we read that the ta- in chapter uh, what was it 18, at the end of it, we read that the tabernacle, the house of God, the, the tent, the dwelling tent where God would dwell with his people, was at Shiloh at the end of chapter 18. And it could be perhaps that chapter 17 and 18 are an early story too. We don't know for sure. Remember we talked about that, that we don't know if that event, if that, where exactly that story was. But we read down in verse 26 that they're in Bethel again. And that's where they are inquiring of Phinehas. But it's interesting that we read that the Ark of the Covenant of God was there. So at the end of, so did the, did the Ark and this, the tent itself, did it move from Shiloh to Bethel? Or are these two events, or is it, or is this event much earlier than verse seven, or chapter 18 and 17? I think that chapter 17 and 18 are probably most likely contemporary are at the same time as Samson, or right before it or right after it. You know, their contemporary account around the time of Samson. I'll give you the reason for that in just a second. But what's interesting about the Ark of God, the mission of the Ark of God here, is that we don't read of God commanding them to do this at all. In Joshua, when they crossed the Jordan River, the Ark was with them. In Joshua, when they marched around Jericho, the Ark was with them. Both times it was because God told them to do it. It was as if God's holy presence was going before them in these events. Not so here, though. This has more of the feel, the feel of like that of 1 Samuel 4, in which Israel brings the ark to battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines capture it. Do you remember that story? We went over in a Sunday school maybe a few months ago, I think, um, somewhat recently. Um, and they were basically trying to use the ark of like, as like this magic token to kind of get them the victory. But it doesn't. It didn't work in First Samuel four. I mean, it gets captured. It doesn't work obviously here against the ben- Benjamites as they lose the first two battles. But what's interesting in First Samuel four, when they are going to battle the Philistines, they take the ark from Shiloh. So uh, that makes sense to me then that chapter seventeen and eighteen is talking about an event that's happening towards the end of the judges period. But this event here is towards the beginning. 
So having the ark here doesn't help them either. Back to verse 18 in chapter 20. Israel asks, who should go up against Benjamin? And Yahweh responds, saying that Judah shall go up first. It's interesting when Israel inquired about who should go and take possession of the land in Judges 1.1. Also, Judah was chosen then. Just interesting. Well, Judah goes out and they get whooped up pretty bad. 22,000 Israelite men die, verse 22. Israel isn't defeated, though, so they take courage and they try to they try to go out and, and do it again and, and line up the same battle and they inquire of God. They weep at Bethel. And this time they read that they inquire of Yahweh. And the Lord God tells them once again to go out. So again, they go out, but Benjamin puts handles on them again, killing 18,000 men. So for a total of 40,000 Israelites dead so far. And they have 400, so a tenth of their army has been killed by this army that's only you know, 26,000 compared to their 400,000. So what's going on here? You have to understand that for Israel, when they acquire of God and the Lord tells them, yes, do this or do that, the assumption for them is especially that the outcome is going to be good, right? Because they're asking, God, do we do this? If God wanted to say if the outcome is going to be bad, he would say, no, that's what they are assuming. And the Lord has promised to be for them in the Old Covenant. And God could have told them, no, don't go out and do this thing. And that would have just been the end of it. So the people go out once again. Uh, they go back to Bethel to inquire of the Lord. But here we read of the whole army going. And they're fasting and they're weeping. And they're offering up burnt offerings and peace offerings. There's obviously a change and how they're approaching this ask of the Lord at this point. And they even say, shall we go up against Benjamin one more time, or should we just stop? Should we cease? You know, just sit, tell us, Lord, what, do, what are we supposed to do? And then verse 28, Yahweh tells them to go, and this time he tells them something new also. He hasn't told them this before. This time he says that they will also be given into their hand. Now, verse 29 through 36 detail the, this whole last battle. On the third day, they go out, and this is the day they have victory on. And the whole rest of the chapter outlines this victory in two tellings of the event. I don't know if you noticed that when we were reading through it. it the it's, it's in two different sections. So kind of like how Genesis 1 simply states that God created mankind. And then in Genesis 2, it goes into more detail on the same thing. Well, 36b through the end of the chapter are two vantage points of telling the same story and what we read is that israel obtains a surprising victory and they end up nearly decimating the men of benjamin killing twenty-five thousand people out of the twenty-six thousand seven hundred that came up from benjamin and the section of the story ends in a really really dark note verse 47 states that 600 men went into hiding for four months but then the men of Israel treat Benjamin in the manner that they were supposed to deal with the Canaanites. So the Canaanites, let's read verse 48 again. 48 says, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. This is their kinsmen. This is Benjamin. And now they go back and they nearly wipe out all of Benjamin. 
it would seem even that women and children were killed because of what we read in what we read in chapter 21, which we'll deal with over the next couple couple weeks, and the fact that they even killed the animals and then they burnt the cities as well, to, down to the ground. And notice, the Lord never instructed them to do that. He never told them to do that. They did this. This group of men that was supposing to stand for righteousness then does this unrighteous act and nearly takes out all of Benjamin. If if we had more time, I say there's principles that we could learn from God's law on how to make righteous judgments. Maybe we'll try to do a special uh, sermon for that coming up. But the story doesn't actually end here. Uh, it's not over. We're going to pick it back up in chapter 21. But in closing, I want to think of how this account points us to Christ and makes us think of the gospel or parts of it. Because this is the gospel according to Judges, after all. Every book in the Old Testament is pointing to and revealing our Lord. So I want to think of the, the process of these three battles. Two defeats and then a victory, right? And there are two ways we can consider this, really. The two things we can take from this, and perhaps that's the Spirit's intent for us to take both of these things. Maybe they're both what is being conveyed. First, Israel's two defeats and then victory shows us that Israel wasn't perhaps really repentant before the Lord and humble before the Lord during those first two attempts. And in a sense, then, if that's the case, it could be that Yahweh is disciplining them, chastising them by letting them go into battle and then having them lose, even though they were asking for his wisdom and his blessing on it. It was his providential means of correcting them and chastising them. They were acting as if they were righteous and could rightly offer punishment to Benjamin, but the Lord needed to humble them first. And if that's the case, the whole episode then is a lesson to remind us to not let pride grow in our own lives. Just because someone sins in a different way than maybe you do doesn't mean that you are without sin. And we should always be examining our hearts and searching out sin and putting it to death. And we, we still have to correct one another. That's still an instruction from the Lord for his people. You know, we talked about that last time. But as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to do so humbly, making sure that there's, like, there's not a plank in our eye when we go and seek to remove the speck in our brother or our sister's eye. Or, as I was re- or and maybe and, as I was reading this passage, this really leaped out of the pages as something that we should take into account. And that is that it's a reminder that God is often mysterious. I mean, we don't, we're not actually told the reason why Israel lost twice and then won on the third time. We're not told that it's to humble them. We could see it there, knowing the Lord, knowing how he works. It, it, it's very probable and possible. But God is often mysterious, not in the shady sense or anything like that, but he does things that are mysterious to us as he is accomplishing his purposes, his will. The hidden things belong to the Lord, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. And especially in the Old Testament, God would leave hints and he would leave clues through shadows and types that point to and reveal Christ Jesus and his work. And so what I think we see here is the type of salvation that Jesus Christ would provide for the elect. So consider how Israel appeared to be defeated after those first two battles. And think of Christ on the cross. Christ is the true Israel, the greater Israel. Think of Christ on the cross. Here is the deliverer, the one who the Jews expected to be the king and to usher in the kingdom at his first coming. 
and he's beaten to a pulp, and he's mocked, and then he's nailed to a cross, and he's left to die. But as we know, it looks like a defeat. But as we know, the Lord, that was the Lord's plan to bring forth victory through death by having the Son of God die. He was going to defeat death with death. If Jesus Christ never died, then we would all still be trapped in our sins. And the penalty for sin is, of course, what? Death. But God was obtaining victory through what looked like defeat to his enemies. And think of the story. I mean, if you were a Pharisee or a Sanhedrin, and you didn't like Jesus, you hated Jesus, you were either jealous of him or you just hated his message, and you saw him bit, battered and bloodied on the cross, you would think that you won, right? And then think back to the event here with the Benjamites and the Israelites. They've just put handles on the Israelites two battles in a row. They look like they're about to, to be defeated. They come out for a third battle, the men of Israel, and in verse 39, let's look at what it says so you can just see how this even plays out. In verse 39 says, The men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us, just as in the first battle. So here's a third battle now. And Benjamin's thinking, Oh, we got this again, right away. But it's at that very point when verse 40 hits, and there's a column of smoke in the city. Benjamin thought they had won again, but what looked like a victory for them was actually the very beginning of their defeat. And again, I mean, you can imagine it's not hard to, that those who hated Christ Jesus had him crucified out of jealousy or disbelief, they, they thought that they had won and they had him hoisted up on the cross. But what they didn't know is that this was God's planned out purpose that he decreed before, uh, in times past, that he would be crucified by evil men. And in doing so, that he would be gaining the victory over sin. And these people who did it, they didn't know that they were causing, that they were what, that their actions were leading to the victory. Just like um, the Benjaminites, when they were chasing Israel, they didn't know about this other party in the back. But they were, you know, they were doing what they thought to get the victory. But that very thing led to their actual defeat. So they didn't, in, in the case of the Sanhedrin and the Romans, the people who lifted Jesus up, they didn't know that they were lifting him up actually to his victory so that anyone who looked to the crucified son and the risen Savior can have salvation, their sins could be forgiven. And so, all then lastly, you know, don't forget, what day are we told this third battle took place? The third day, right? It was the, on the third day they went out. And on the third day, in accordance with scriptures, Christ rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. And in rising from the dead, he defeated death. So praise God, and to him be glory for all of his mighty works. He's the King of kings. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these events are shocking to us. They're, they're hard to understand. But nevertheless, in it, we see your sovereign hand working and bringing about your purposes Lord, we pray that you would help us to always remember the gospel, how it is that we were deserving of death, but that you, by sending your son to die, defeated death so that we might have eternal life in him, resurrected life and abundant life even. And we pray also, Lord, that you would help us to take sin seriously, knowing the potential for great evil that exists within us. So help us to always be looking to Christ every day and to be 
seeking to put sin to death. And help us even, Lord, um, to be bold enough and loving enough to help our fellow brother or sister as we see them struggling with sin. And let us be humble and welcoming to anyone else correcting us with any um, sort of needed rebuke. Lord, you are Lord of our lives, and we are glad that is the case. We pray that you would bless the rest of the night all for Christ's glory's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, <laughs>